Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, your podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film, or in this case, the award-winning TV show. I'm your host, Rob Stennett, and we're about to have a spoiler-free, followed by a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and the ideas within the movie, or the show in this case. Uh, Andrew Harmon's out today, so I'm here with my good friend Patton Dodd to talk about Succession. Patton, what's up, man? What's up, Rob? It's good to be here. Good to see you, and and uh, I'm excited to talk about this TV show. So you're a friend of the show and friend of mine, and um, we've talked about a lot of shows over the years. Um, but I think for me, this has been in the last like five years or so. This has been the show that's probably like captured my attention and my heart the most. I was more of a latecomer to the show. I didn't really jump on until into season two, season three, mm-hmm. um, because I actually saw. I think I even watched the pilot, and I was like. I don't know, it looks like privileged rich people dealing with privileged rich people problems. Um, And then now that I'm a fan of the show, I tell people all the time, like, you have to watch this show. And they give me that same sort of pushback. And I never have like a clean, solid answer. So I'm curious from you, Pat, and if you were given the pitch of why someone should be watching Succession, what would you say? So I have an answer to your question, but I, I think I also have advice for people who are Succession first timers. And who are nervous and just need a little bit of a tip to get over that over that hump? Which do you want? You want my answer first, or you want my advice? I I've, I think I like the tip. Like that feels like a hack. That feels like a. <laughs> so, so so start with that. Okay, I'll start there. I think the best way to get into succession is to go into it believing that it's a comedy, knowing that you are supposed to laugh, and you have to sort of suspend your disbelief about this because the opening scenes will be like, wait a minute, this isn't a comedy. Maybe the whole you know, uh, much of the first episode, you won't be thinking it's a comedy, but I swear when you rewatch it, you will know it's a comedy. There is like, there are laugh lines like every minute just about. And I think that it helps to find that humor wave as early as you can and just write it. Um, You know, this is one of the things that's always debated about this show. Is it, is it a comedy or is it a tragedy? Um, And if it's a tragedy, which is what it, feels like when you start it and what the, what it sort of sounds like, even the opening, you know, the theme song, which I'm sure we'll talk about and all that. It feels like you're about to watch this grand Shakespearean tragedy. Um, but what's hard about that is that the characters are so unsympathetic and you need sympathetic right. characters to enjoy a tragedy. So it's better, I think, to think of succession. Just if you're just looking to enjoy it and it's just how do, how do I find the groove for this show? I think it's to assume that it's a comedy. That it's like The Office meets Arrested Development meets Veep meets The Big Short. Yeah, it's if you're thinking this more like the Bluth family from Arrested Development, Michael Scott yeah. from The Office, and those type of things, which it does not feel funny right away. It fe- like the first episode is like, oh, this man's dying, and there's a news story breaking out, and it's yeah. really heavy. Actually, I just rewatched the whole thing getting ready for season four, and I was surprised, like. The first couple of episodes are in the hospital and what do we say about dad? And so it it puts you on. And I think this show is trying to find its voice um, in some ways. Uh, But but it's true. The way it's shot is so much like a Christopher Guest movie or like The Office or something like that. Yeah. That it does feel like a comedy. And then like just like a great episode of The Office where all of a sudden you're laughing. There's a a Pam and Jim moment that just like grabs your heart and you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. this gave me all the feels. Uh, It's similar in succession. Yeah, and I I think when I 
sort of got clued into the fact that this is actually intentionally funny in a lot of ways, I began to enjoy it more. And the people, the characters actually, so the characters are, are biting and they're sarcastic and they're, they're full of wit, but they're also all really gross. And so when people are saying, I don't want to spend time with people like that, I mean, I totally get it. They're not sympathetic and they're, they're not the kind of people who are enjoyable to be around, but they are all very funny. Like their jokes are hilarious, like line by line. And what I think you learn as you watch this show is that their jokes are like the armor that they're wearing in a really unloving and brutal world. And so if you laugh with them, you kind of get on their side emotionally a little bit, which helps you get closer to their pain, which makes your sympathy kick in. And you start to experience them like on a feeling level. And so that's my theory of like how to get into succession is to think, I want to watch this show to laugh. And if you give yourself that permission uh, right away, I think you can get into it more easily. Do you? So what's the second part of your answer? Is that what it is? Or is there a second kind of answer of like why people should be watching this show? I'm, yeah, I think that's a hard question to answer. I mean, so um, the first thing I thought of when you asked me this question was that my sister is watching The Wire for the first time right now. And mm. by the way, a few weeks ago, she texted me and she was like, hey, Patton, I've been watching this show called The Wire and you've got to check it out. <laughs> it's amazing. I think you're going to love it. I thought she was trolling me. I was like, are you actually <laughs> recommending that I watch The Wire as if it came out last weekend? She's like, have you heard of The Simpsons? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also just like I've been reading this guy called William Shakespeare and I think he's really good. I mean, The Wire is <laughs> right. a masterpiece. It's like the masterpiece of all masterpieces. And I think that's actually part of my answer to this question where people are like, why should I watch Succession and hang out with miserable people? It's because it's in the pantheon now of great shows. I know this is like recency bias, but I really believe, I mean, this is not an argument for the show so much as it is a statement about it. But I just have to say, if you are the kind of person who thinks of yourself as someone who's interested in what TV can do, you know, and like what the medium of storytelling is capable of, I just think Succession is one of these shows that's working and achieving at a really high level. The writing and the acting, the the plotting is super convulsive. The sets and the costume design are super dialed in. And once you get into it, it's just a head-spinning viewing experience. Yeah, I kind of think like every three or four years, there's like a show that kind of captures my imagination. And culture in general, like, you know, anything from The Wire to Sopranos to Mad Men, then there's Breaking Bad, there's Game of Thrones, there's these certain shows, which is like, okay, it has like the championship belt right now. It is kind of at the Mm -hmm. center. And for me right now, Succession is that show. And it is really funny, but in its heartbreaking moments, I feel it as emotionally deeply as any show I've ever watched. And I think that's what messes with me is like, it's so funny. And then I'm just like, I don't know if I'm crying or just like broken for these broken people, but I feel something deeply when I'm watching some of these moments. Yeah. It, I mean, it it can be really, really gutting. Like whether you think of of yourself as caring about these characters or not, the things that happen to them are uh, the things they do to each other um, can, I mean, it's riveting, but it's, it's pretty harrowing. And, you know, I mean, to be fair to people who were skeptical and also just to myself, I mean, I did, I did have to work a little bit to, to get into this show because it is about a bunch of privileged people and they are awful humans. But it reminds me of like when I first started watching Breaking Bad, I had a very similar experience. I did not enjoy spending time in the world of that show. 
And yeah. I watched the first two or three episodes when it first came out. And I was like, I'm out. I don't want to spend time with a guy building a meth business and lying to everyone around him. And I didn't watch it for like a year. And then, you know, you keep hearing about it. And I thought, I'm going to give this try, uh, another try. And the same thing happened with Succession. I, I mean, in spite of the defense and the advice um, that I offered, I really didn't like it much at first. I just I kind of I wanted to know about it because it was so much in the cultural conversation and I wanted to be aware of it. But it definitely took me a little bit to get into it. But what I got into was the writing. Like once I realized that every line and every scene is so taut and, you know, tightly drawn, drawn line for line, then I got into it. And I think it helps to watch it with the subtitles on because there's so much yeah. happening in the dialogue. And when you can read like the asides that they're making to one another, you appreciate it a lot more. Yeah, Roman has all these little throwaway lines oh that he'll just say yes. in there like under his breath. And when you watch with subtitles, you're like, man, even the under his breath stuff is like so funny and so great. And they often tag the scenes with that kind of stuff. Like there'll, there'll be a primary joke that like a scene builds to. And then the scene will begin to transition. Maybe even a character is walking out of the room, but people who are still in there are still commenting on that character. And it's kind of like lower in the, you know, in the sound levels. Um, but when you rewatch it or watch it with subtitles on, you pick that stuff up and it's just so rich. So what I wanted to do today was one, just kind of like onboard anyone. If you're like, this came up in your feed and you're like, okay, the meaning of the movie guys are talking about succession. I haven't really seen it. This is kind of my pitch of like why to watch it. And then we're going to get into like more spoilers and talk about the first uh, three seasons and kind of what we're looking forward to in season four. Uh, while the aperture is still kind of wide open and we're talking big picture, I didn't want to talk about the opening credits. Um, how important are the opening credits for your this show? I've skipped them two or three times. You know, you push skip intro and then I always feel really yes. guilty because it's yes. so well done. And I I'll, I should punish myself and go back and rewatch them again just to make up for skipping them ever because I, I usually don't skip them. Like I, I think they are visually s- stunning. I mean, I I think they're, you know, they're up there with, you know, probably best opening sequences, um, or title, title sequences and TV shows of all time. The From the, like, drop of that opening drums and piano, it's just, it announces itself as being operatic, as, um, as being, you know, it feels like this, it's this sweeping epic story. It's global. You, you know, you see, like, family footage, and then you see you know, dynastic um, settings of this, you know, global globetrotting family. Right. And it's just, it's right. just head spinning. It's mesmerizing. So I haven't really talked about this in the show before, but I'm a huge opening credits fan. It's something that I've thought about a lot. I, I once had this idea for a cover band that would just play opening credits from TV themes. So like MacGyver or different strokes or that sort of stuff. Um, but I actually really love like 80s opening credits themes where it's like, hey, this theme song is going to tell you the whole premise of the show. It's like different strokes kind of like tells you, okay, these are kids from the projects and these are rich people in the penthouse and they're all coming together. And like, that's the, that's the gimmick or, Hey, the Jeffersons were moving all up. The, that opening credit kind of gave the theme of it. Um, and I think succession actually calls back to that and does the same thing, but really in the, in a meaningful, meaningful way. And I actually wrote down, I think, I wrote down a list of my all-time favorite opening credits. You want to hear them? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So this is my list of like Hall of Fame opening credits. 
Can I, can I guess? Can I guess what I think will be in there? How many do you have? Yes. I have five. All right. I'm just going to say it's going to include Cheers. It's going to yes. include the A team, <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, the A team is awesome, but it is not. Did not <laughs> the Simpsons. <laughs> yes. Um, and, um, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank now. I'll stop there. I feel good, though. I got two of your five. Okay, you got you got two in successions. So let's read the five. So here they are in. Oh, in the Sopranos. Right, Sopranos. Yep. Uh, Sopranos is oh, also. Oh man, in there. I'm almost. I'm almost there. All right, Mash. <sighs> Mash probably should be in there, but it's not. I actually feel guilty for not having Mash because I think that that may be the most important one ever. Um, okay, I'll stop. I'll stop stepping on your list. No, this is great. So The Simpsons is on my list because it creates the world of Springfield, right? Which is so important. And what it did that like changed yeah. opening cre- You used to not be able to hit skip on credits. And so what Simpsons did that was so smart was they would swap out jokes. They'd have like what Bart did at the end of the blackboard would always change. And then most famously, once they all landed on the couch, there'd always be a different gag. And it's like, what's going to happen on the couch this week? To me, it's yeah. one of the best credit gags ever and so that's so good sopranos is like the whole soul of the show is just kind of tony driving through his empire just those shots the song the woke up one morning got yourself a gun uh it's so incredible the smoke and then he finally lands at home so you just see this guy's a day at work blood on his hands and then he's getting home and that tension between the two worlds like sets the stage for the show next on my list uh is our one of our more recent ones, which is Stranger Things. Um, I just oh. won't skip the credits of Stranger Things. I just think it like all it does is like tone. It's in like a Stephen King font, but it just like sucks you in. And then it does that thing where it like zooms in on the chapter title and then goes hollow. Mm-hmm. And then you like go into the chapter. And it, it reminds me of like reading a great Stephen King book every time I watch mm-hmm. those credits. And um, it's very atmospheric. It's not story driven, but mm-hmm. it's really great. And then Hall of Fame, like right at the top of the list is Cheers. Um, That is giving the whole meaning of the movie theme, right? It's the meaning of the show. It's like sometimes you got to go where everyone knows your name. It's just like we know your life is miserable. We know there's pain. But you're coming here for a half hour with people with Norm and Cliff and people that you just like. Um, And then I think maybe the most important one ever is Succession because what that – what it's doing is like this whole like childhood and life of pain. There's so many shots that are so telling in those opening credits from like the kid, like smoking the cigar, looking right at the camera, the like young Shiv kind of looking off in the distance, the Brian Cox character, like waving his hands and saying, no, there's just all this stuff that says, this is a lot of like privilege and pain and jockeying for position that's been going on for decades and we're just walking in the latest chapter of it. The image that I always think about in the opening sequence is uh, I think they're outside um, in like a garden, like an English garden style garden at a huge table and you're behind uh, the father's head and shoulders and you're seeing how spaced out his family is around him. And then they, and then they match that shot. I think at the end with like a modern day version of the same thing, they actually match it in the show a few times as well. But that is an iconic uh, image for sure. It's just so, and the music, of course, is so important in the show and is used throughout. And it's just such a unique score. And so all of that to me just like 
sets the tone for this show. I mean, the music is like a whole other level. I mean, we could almost have uh, a whole conversation just about the the music. In fact, I would recommend that everyone go to YouTube and 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 search Succession theme song. There's a van. I think it's Vanity Fair did like an eight or ten minute um, interview with the composer um, of that score, and he talks about his process. He talks about like learning what the story was going to be about and seeing some of the dailies beginning to come in as they were first shooting the first season. And for instance, seeing, uh, you know, in the first, um, one of the first times we see Kendall, he's um, in the back of a limo preparing to go to a big, important meeting. He's trying to pump himself up and he's listening to the Beastie Boys. Boys. Yeah. Um, And the, and the composer was like, I, I've been trying to figure out the sound, the, you know, what's the theme, what's the, what's the, what's, what's the music that's going to set the tone for this show. And he decided to work in a little bit of something like a hip hop. So that's why that drum beat mm. falls the way that it does. And that particular piano sound has like a kind of an R&B component to it, but it's also like courtly and operatic. And yes. like somehow, somehow he merges like sort of New York, Brooklyn beats, you know, Queens, sounds of Queens with the sounds of, you know, the English countryside. <laughs> yeah, they even do this episode where they go to New Mexico in season one, and then there's like this like Southwestern cover of it and I was like oh this shouldn't work but I'm getting like so emotional as like Willa and Connor talking about whatever they're talking about and the you know the mariachi guitar starts coming in and playing the theme and it's it's just breathtaking and so so I agree the combination of like what those images mean to the story and what the music means to the show in an age when most people just hit skip on opening credits in an age when opening credits have kind of died and gone away and are a thing of the past They've somehow like elevated it and made it the central heart and hub of the show. Yeah, and it's an earworm. Like I, I feel like I have yes. it in my head all the time. Like it's just, it's, it's really fun to listen to. I definitely do right now as we're talking about it. It's so hard for me not yeah. to be like, Ba-na-na-na-na, you know, <laughs> hum it out loud because it's blaring in my head. Okay, yeah. well, on the meaning of the movie, we do categories, and so we break down these different categories, and so. For this sake, I thought it'd be cool to like just go through everything's on the table, season one through three, or even season four if you want. Um, okay. But where we are right now, we just watched the first episode of season four. But I want to talk about the first three seasons and talk about the heart and the soul of the show and just ask some questions and see what jumps out to you. So my first question is this for you. Who's the most meaningful character of Succession? I think this is a really hard question. I, you know, I, I think Kendall is the heart of the show. Yeah. Um, and so I think I'm going to, I'm going to go to him. I mean, I, you know, he's not my favorite character. Um, that's not what you're asking. Um, I don't know that he's, um, the one I sort of think about the most or that I'm looking, you know, I'm not as curious about what happens to him as I might be with others, but we sort of start with Kendall in rising action, you know, about to make a big move in the, in the, in the opening, um, in the opening episode. And that's basically what he does the whole time, you know, th- 3.1 season so far. He just makes one big move after another. Um, he has a big appetite for risk as a former uh, drug user in, in this, in this um, 
uh, last episode, he mentions how much he loves horse, which I thought was a <laughs> hilarious just how much he claimed that as someone who's trying to be sober. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he has a big appetite for risk, but he also, you know, has massive losses one after another. And we watch him absorb those losses like a kicked puppy. So he's just really, really up and really, really down. And I think Kendall's decisions and his behavior drive a lot of the action. Maybe the clue to the answer of who's the most meaningful character, at least in the writer's brains, is the fact that they tend to build major transitions, season enders, that sort of thing around things Kendall does. The first two seasons especially end with really big moves that Kendall individually makes on his own. Season three ends a little bit differently, more of a corporate move. Um, but seasons one and two really are built around him and his, his actions and his decisions. So I think he's probably... Our, our central character. I mean, Kendall is the answer. I, I have another answer that I'll give in a moment, but Kendall, when, you know, we talked so much about it being a comedy, but the drama of this show is locked into Kendall and it happens really mm-hmm. early on. I, I rewatched the pilot and there's this great moment when his dad, he realizes his dad's like, hey, maybe this will be five years, maybe it'll be 10 years. He thinks he's about to get the throne and realize it's being taken away. And he goes in the bathroom. This has kind of become a meme. But he goes in the bathroom and he, like, breaks the hairdryer. He smashes something on the mirror. He breaks, like, a candle holder. He breaks a cabinet. He does all this stuff. He grabs a towel and he, like, screams into it. And then the most telling moment is he takes a little dustpan and he cleans up his mess and he puts <laughs> it all away. And I was just like, that is a picture of Kendall, man. That is a picture of a <laughs> – he kind of freaks out and is a toddler but then tries to be a grown-up. And that tension between him is just – he is the soul of the show to me. And Jeremy Strong himself, uh, so much has been written and talked about, about how he is this method actor – um, and just the mm-hmm. the tension between him and Brian Cox and uh, the rest of the cast of like how he approaches the show versus how the rest of them do. Yeah, he he. You know, there's a lot of jokes about how about how Jeremy Strong can't tell where Kendall ends and Jeremy begins because um, he you know they are when you listen to to interviews with him. Of course, it was this sort of famous or infamous New Yorker profile of him last year where. Yep. It's almost, you know, it's cringy. In fact, there was a, there was a, um, I saw a video the other day of, I think the title was something like um, compilation of, of, of most cringy Kindle moments. And it was like 14 minutes long of just these really short <laughs> clips of him doing things like Tai Chi, you know, in his bedroom or whatever he's doing and, and, uh, or just saying things that are incredibly awkward or rapping at his dad's uh, birthday party. Um, uh, I mean, he's just, he's over the top. And yet he is so brittle. Like he's always almost about to break. I, I have to say, I, I, am a, I love Jeremy Strong. I think he's like, I, I love him and everything that he's in. He's super intense. I love listening to interviews with him because he, I know he puts people off, but the dude is just like all the way dialed into what he's doing. And he's 100% committed to it. And you can feel it when you're watching this show. I mean, he's just acting at a whole other level. He, yeah, he is, um, I mean... You just feel for him like deeply and the look on his face when he looks broken or something's gone wrong or he realizes he's lost. It is just like, yeah, puppy, (laughs) like being tortured or something. He just has these deep, dark, sad eyes. And so many of my favorite moments of the show are like tied into him. I'm curious, who is your favorite character? Do you have a favorite? I mean, it's hard not to uh, have a crush on Cousin Greg the way that I feel yeah. like a lot of Succession fans have. Um, 
For a long time, I, I, I think I said that Shiv was my favorite character. I think she was just the one I was the most interested in. Um, the air of the air of mystery around her. I thought Shiv was like a mover and a shaker and the smartest Roy for a long time. And now I think the show has shown us that she's not that. Um, she's made a lot of stupid moves and yeah. um and you know, probably has definitely has, you know, been given power and opportunity that she has not earned. But she fascinates me, um, for sure. Um uh you know, Tom, I mean, I, could, I, could, I think I just got to work my way through the roster because like yeah. over time, I think I've developed a deep and abiding interest in each of these characters. Um, Tom, uh, you know, uh, Shiv's husband, or maybe not for much longer, but Shiv's husband, as far as we know, um, is um, also just a fascinating guy. One of these things is not like the other, like he just doesn't quite fit in. And he knows that about himself and he's angry about it. And watching him work work out that anger, especially on Cousin Greg, is is fascinating to me. Um, yes. But probably, I mean, you know, whenever it's a Cousin Greg scene, I think I probably perk up like a lot of people because he's hilarious and um, uh, probably the funniest character. Um, although Roman gets the funniest lines, I think Cousin Greg, it's you know, it's just the funniest person overall. I don't know how about I, I could I think I could answer this question in a million ways. So how about you? I think Cousin Greg makes me laugh the most just because I see the most of myself in him. Um, yeah. I definitely see a little bit of, like, Roman, who's always just kind of the one guy. Like, I'm that in every area of my life. Like, when it's Christmas dinner and everyone's really serious and I'm making the joke that's like, ah, are you sure you yeah. should have made that joke? Like, that's me. But but when I'm awkward and, like, trying to fit in and I just have no game at all, I see that so much in Greg, the way he tries to talk of, like, it's a fine evening, doth thou. And he just like, <laughs> <laughs> he tries to talk like how a stoner who is a mascot in the theme park thinks rich people talk. And it's yeah. just like, <laughs> I just resonate with it so much. And so I love him deeply. Um, Tom is the other one who's probably closest to Kendall in the fact that he's so funny, but then he has heartbreaking moments. Like, probably my favorite line in the show is like when he tells Shiv, he's like, I just wonder if the sad I'd be without you is less than the sad I get from being with you. Mm. And it's such a like devastating line. It also mm -hmm. describes like my life as a Denver Broncos fan. Um, it's just like this kind of sadness and then, you know, just them being together and he loves her. I think, do you think he loves her? I think he absolutely loves her. I think he fell in love with her for sure. I think, and he, I think he believed that love would be the healing force in, in, yeah. in her life and maybe in their whole family. Like he is an, he's probably the most idealistic person when the series begins, you know, yeah. he's in, he's in this new love. He, they're not yet engaged. Um, he, believes in the Roy's. He believes this, he, he, he has several comments about, you know, about how this is this great, powerful, but also loving and kind <laughs> family. Like he's just really blind to who they are, but he's a believer. Yeah. And um, I think he absolutely adores her. He's really hurt, you know, by her infidelity. Um, and, you know, she, she plays hurt when he, is when he wrongs her, but she's not really hurt when he wrongs her, but he's Tom, you, you see how much he, you know, he is hurt by her. So yeah, I think he absolutely loves Shiv. I, I totally agree. And again, he's the guy who like, when you see him hurt, 
um, it it's painful. And and yeah. It's it's weird because kind of like Kendall, and this is the magic of the show to me. Like he shouldn't be likable. He shouldn't be a. Yeah. Car- I mean, this is a guy who uses people as footstools in his office. This is a guy who like picks on cousin Greg like every chance he get. He he kind of a, a Thanksgiving dinner. He's sending him to like shred documents. Like he's always self serving. But I think Shiv is the key to unlocking like why we care about Tom and why we love him. Um, okay, let's keep moving. Do you have a most meaningful episode or moment of succession? Um, I'll tell you the uh, the scene that I have found myself thinking about uh, more than any other over the last year or two is in season three, which is and near the end of season three. It actually might even be in the last episode when um, Kendall and Shiv and Roman are all sitting on, or Kendall's sitting on the ground talking, and they're basically they're basically trying to figure out what they're going to do, what move they're going to make, and it's where Kendall confesses, uh, yes, uh, what he's done, um, and where he confesses to. Are we? Is it okay if I talk about what happens? In, I, I forget where we are in terms of spoiler. We're we're in spoiler town now. We're there. So okay, if so, you, <laughs> I said it before, okay, so, but if you haven't listened, like <laughs> turn it off. So I think that's where Kendall says out loud for the first time that he's responsible for the death of a boy. Um, it is at at Shiv's wedding, and that's where Roman makes the joke about how well it took me forty five minutes to get a gin and tonic. So who's the real victim here? Um, which is a perfect Roman line. Um, I love I that about- line so much. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's like, I had to wait forty five minutes, so I think I'm kind of the real victim here. <laughs> yeah. I've thought about that season or that um, that episode that that scene a lot in part because of the way that it's staged. Um, the three yes. Roy children they're dealing with something really hard. They need to talk directly to each other about something important. They don't look at each other very much at all in that scene. They're having probably the most critical conversation of their lives at that point. Yes, they're looking off into different distances. They're kind of triangulated. There's like six or ten feet between them at times. And, and they they're by trash cans, like out in the yeah. dirt road. You know, they're not in the pretty fountains. They're not in the like opulent yeah. locations we've seen the whole time. That's right. Yeah, most of the show, you're in these just impeccable places, and here they're uh, literally on dirt, and um, and it's just a harrowing scene. It's really well staged. I heard an interview with Jeremy Strong recently where he was talking about how um, they could not get that scene right. He could not get that scene right, Couldn't just couldn't quite deliver that moment. It was just really, really off. And finally, he sat down on the dirt. And it was when he sat down on the dirt that he was able to sort of embody, you know, the moment that Kendall uh, was in, which is so right, because he looked, he's so defeated in yeah. that moment. We t- I talked about him earlier being a guy who takes, you know, has an appetite for, for really big risks and takes really big swings. He's done at that moment. And he needs his brother and sister to, like, come alongside him. And they kind of do which we don't see very often in that show. So I think about that scene all the time. So there's so many shows that are about like fathers and sons. Um, I'm even curious, like you've written and are writing about dads, you know, you have a lot of thoughts about this. So fathers and sons or parent dynamics and that sort of stuff. And you think that's what this show is about. And it is, but the thing that strikes me about it is this is one of the best shows about siblings that I've ever seen. 
This is one of the yeah. shows about those relationships, about the way that siblings are all equals. And I mean, I talk to a lot of people and a lot of friends, and some of the most painful relationships that people have are not with their parents, but with their siblings of like, mm. I'm estranged, or how do we make it right? Or just, you know, we had different perspectives on how to treat mom or dad or that sort of thing. Siblings is such a weird relational dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think most drama doesn't get it right. And man, this show, there's a few moments with the siblings all together. One at Shiv's wedding when they're all sitting underneath the dock uh, the night before she gets married and the three of them are talking together. And it's just like those moments with the three of them when they're raw and real, even though they have no idea how to be, even in that scene in Kendall's most vulnerable moments, Roman is still making the jokes. Shiv is still taking phone calls. Like they're still themselves. But there's still this electricity between that sibling relationship that, to me, gives so much of the show like life and heart and soul. Yeah, I agree. I think they, I think they love each other. You know, I think yeah. they, I think the show spends a lot of time with them trying to navigate their way back to each other to become allies, um, to collaborate in some way. And yeah, there's real tenderness between those three characters. That's true. Not so much with um, with Connor. Um, but with the three younger uh, Roy's for sure. Well, there's even a great moment in that episode with Connor when Kendall says, you know, as the oldest son, and then Connor gets really close to him and he's like, I am the oldest son. And he <laughs> kind of says it weird, but it's clear, like Connor is clearly the black sheep, even though he's the most innocent of all of them. He's kind of the fake Roy fourth child. Like, it's like, oh, you're a different parent. You're not us. You know, he's out, out of the club. Um, one other thing that I do want to say about that scene is you mentioned comedy being the armor, and I think it's totally right. These people do not know how to be honest and kind and loving yeah. and most of all vulnerable to each other. Like Kendall's bro- broken moment, they're kind of like, they're there. Like they literally, Shiv and Roman have no idea how to what to do with this kind of outpouring of emotion that Kendall's having. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they... They, I thought about this a lot of this last episode, the first episode of season four. They're, they're, they're trying to, you know, we'll get to this later, I'm sure, but they're trying to collaborate, you know, and build something together. But they can't really communicate to one, to one, another, to one another without talking in, in jokes and without cutting remarks. But yes. often, I don't have any of this in front of me, but like I know, there's several of these lines that are cutting that are also references to things that happened to them when they were little. You know, there'll be references yes. to like failed camping trips or like, you know, awful, awful moments that they remember together, but that's what they share. And, yes, you know, they sort of, you know, they have a lot of affection for one another, like any sibling would around what they share. Yeah, I mean, kind of back to the opening credits thing, this, this family history and so many things that we don't know is what bonds them together. Um, my yeah. most meaningful moment for me is still when I became a fan of this show, when I was like, okay, I'm in all the way, is the season one finale with Kendall and the waiter and they drove into the water and he goes back and tries to save him. And then he's just hiking through the woods at night. I, I read that Jeremy Strong would actually, I mean, it was freezing. It's in England late at night mm-hmm. and they would have him pour buckets of ice water on him. Cause he's like, I want to actually be suffering and shivering. And there's this moment when he's walking through the mud and mush. And then you see fireworks in the background and you hear like the cheers in the faint distance and just that juxtaposition of like the the king's party up on the hill and the darkness prodigal sun moment of what happened to the sun it's just so powerful to me 
And then he goes into the party itself and he finds his family and he dances with them. And it's almost like this is the life that he could have had. This is the fork in the road that he could have had if he would have stayed with Rava and everything else. That whole sequence, dude, uh, there's nothing else I've ever seen quite like it. I just adore that moment and that scene. And I feel like the whole show is rooted in that sequence. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's like the tragic heart of this of this show for me too, because it's like he, it felt like Kendall was almost capable of turning a corner, you know, and um, and living straight. And he, um, that sequence is like, um, it's ambiguous. It's amb- it's ambiguous about wh- how much he tries to help. In fact, in the in the scene that I was referencing when they're sitting in the dirt, um, I think. Roman asks him to clarify, did you try to help? Like, what did you do exactly? Yeah. And then Roman was like, it sounds to me like you're the hero in this story. Yes. Like you actually, yes. yeah, which was a beautiful sort of gracious act for Roman um, in that moment to try to lift him up in that way. And I think it's actually the right read. I mean, he, he put the kid's life in danger for sure, um, but they had an accident. They swerved to miss a deer. And well, the, you know, kid, like the kid grabbed the steering wheel. Like Roman didn't do it. If you watch it back, ah, that's right. The, the waiter yes. kid grabs the steering wheel and does it. And then he goes to save him. And so certainly it's his fault and the fact that he's inebriated, but he didn't even cause the crash. But, but what really, the, I, I think that like sort of legally speaking and also like narratively speaking, wh- who's to blame in that moment is ambiguous. But what makes it um, unambiguous is his father the next day. Right. right. Roman makes sure that Kendall believes that he was the primary mover of that whole situation. And then he killed that boy. And every time he brings it up with him in seasons to come, the way he like narrates that is that you killed that kid. You're a rich kid that killed a poor kid. Like he says that multiple, something like that multiple times. Right. Until the end of season two, when he finally tells him like, He's like, I did a horrible thing. And he's like, no, he's not a real person. I forget what their acronym is, but like yeah. no real person involved or whatever else like that. Then yeah. he, when it's serving his purpose, he lets Roman off the, or sorry, lets Kindle off the hook. Um, this ties into my like least meaningful moment, but I'm curious from you, is there anything that like rings false to you or is not meaningful about succession? I could do without the underground birthday party in season one. Um Oh yeah, and I think I could also do without Kendall's fortieth birthday party, which I think is in season three. Yeah, it's in those both three. feel a little bit like bottle episodes to me. Um, and I think part of what I don't like about them is that they're just so gross. Like they just they revel in the excess that's that's made possible by grand riches with with and people with no moral compass at all. And I don't know. I hate spending time in those environments. I, I've like as a person, I don't spend time in those environments, but I have a couple times and I've hated them. And I don't know, those episodes just feel to me like kind of just turning the volume of um, of the gluttony of this lifestyle with no consequences all the way up. And yeah. we already know that about these people. So it doesn't seem like the right kind of a narrative investment to be making. You know what I mean? When other interesting things could be happening. So I... Um, yeah, not a big fan of those episodes. When I was rewatching Succession with my wife, uh, a couple months ago, um, she had not seen it. She got into it and uh, and has has caught up now and is a fan uh, along with us. But when we got to that um, episode, we were like twenty minutes into the 
underground birthday party. Is it Tom's birthday? No, it's his bachelor party. It's his bachelor party, yeah. It's his bachelor party. I spoke I misspoke. So that's that's the one I'm talking about. We were in that scene and she was like, Is this necessary? Like, does anything happen here that I need to know about? Because if not, I'd rather skip this one. And I was like, honestly, yeah. I can't remember anything important that happens here. And we skipped it. And I think she was fine having skipped it. So I think that's probably the least meaningful one for me. That's a great answer. I, I'd agree with that. I think some of it is just like, it is just like a, a bottle episode is a great way to say it of like, hey, these are super rich people. And now they're going in the rich, dark underground. And here's what it looks like. And you can yeah. be tourists for a moment. My answer is actually, and it bleeds into season four as well. But, like, I'm curious what you think about this. So I was so invested. I, I think the season finales on this show every single time are incredible. We have season one with um, Kendall in the car accident. And then season two is when he goes and he gets up in front of the press conference and he says, there is no way my father could have done what he did. And, like, there's no way this cover could have happened without my father knowing about it. He knows everything. Yeah. And Kendall finally has this, like, awesome heroic moment where he stands up to his dad. And that moment was really well choreographed throughout the season when he goes and he shuts down Volter. And you see Kendall really competent in that episode. Even though it's Savage, you see, okay, this is a Savage corporate guy. He goes in front of Congress. And when Tom is flubbering and Greg is doing whatever else, and even Logan is kind of like, I don't know, ask my son. Kendall gets up in front of all of Congress and gives these very, like, Republican-y, red state sort of sound bites, but they're really strong and believable, and he just mm-hmm. goes for it and gives them, and I was like, dude, he is killing it. And so you see this guy who has gone from, like, the Beastie Boys, I'm the goofy kind of heir, to, like, you're like, oh, he's Michael Corleone. And I was so sold on the fact of, like, his arc is complete and changed. And then as soon as we get into season three, he's, like, back to, like, goofy Kindle. He's like, okay, everybody, battle stations. And he's like, hey, why don't you guys roast me? And he becomes this goofy guy again. And I was really disappointed in the first half of season three that, like, the Kindle that had been building up all through season two all of a sudden was not there. And, and I felt like, kind of going back to our earlier conversation, part of it is because, hey, this is a comedy, not as tragedy, so we got to get Kendall back to where he is, this goofy whatever else son, versus like, oh, no, he's actually progressed and grown. What's your, like, am I right? Am I wrong there? What's your response to that? I just think it's consistent with who he is and the way he's been written. I mean, I think he is an empty shell. I think he knows how to perform a part and play a role, but not be an actual person. He doesn't actually... So Kendall's mouth is full of smart-sounding, like, businessy lingo, but he doesn't actually know how to run a business. Like, he can sound like he knows how to run a business. It's like he copies and pastes the smartest language you can find from Harvard Business Review or whatever, or from Silicon Valley think tanky people. And and he's he's great at remembering those words and phrases, um, but he's not actually good at running anything. He's never had to run anything. And so I think that, I think, and I think Kendall knows this about himself, that he cannot actually deliver the goods. He can act like he can. He can listen to the Beastie Boys and pump himself up. I think that's why he needs cocaine and heroin, because he needs to stay pumped up in order to perform. Um, so I agree, it's deflating to watch that. And it's, it's really sad and it feels inconsistent, but I actually think over the arc of the whole character development of Kindle, it's actually really consistent. He can talk the talk, but he can't actually walk the walk. Well, and so in interviews that I've read with Jesse Armstrong, he's said as much as like, I fundamentally believe people don't change. 
people are kind of who they are and they just don't change. And I think like as a dramatist, that's like the opposite of what drama is. It's like, no, there's arcs and changes. Um, But I do think as, I mean, Jesse Armstrong is his own beast. He's doing his own unique thing. And I I kind of applaud the conviction of like, no, Kendall, now it's not going to be season three where Kendall's awesome. It's going to be like, okay, we're kind of resetting him back to where we were before. Um, and, but anyway, I, I just wrestled with that watching it in real time. And so I was curious of like your reaction to it. Okay. So we haven't got a chance to talk about this yet, but I'm curious, what did you think about season four, episode one? I, uh, I loved it. Um, I loved, uh, especially the opening, I don't know, 20 minutes or so when we learn that the, uh, the, not the Kindle kids, the Roy, the Roy kids are all trying to start a business together. And we spend a few a few different scenes with them, hearing about them trying to launch a startup called The Hundred, yes. um, which Kendall describes as Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker, <laughs> which I think is so so wonderful, and probably a phrase that someone has used in a in a pitch meeting at some point at some in some in some time. Um, and this is what I'm talking about: how he knows the language of business, like. There's another scene um, in this episode where they're kind of brainstorming what is the hundred, which is this idea of like a kind of a Vox media tile like style news website, you know, filled with experts. And he says, we're the, you know, we'll have yes. all the experts, the best experts from AI to Israel, Palestine to, to uh, <laughs> um, Michelin restaurants. And, I was watching that. I was like, um, Patton has been in these meetings before. Like you have like you've oh, been in these type of startup meetings before. You uh, know that world uh, so deeply. A hundred percent. I've I've been a part of many a failed startup. And so <laughs> I know what those pitch meetings sound like. And that's what they sound like. And there's a moment where Kendall is going like, he's saying something about how we're going to be giving high calorie info snacks. And then he's like, are they info parcels or are they info snacks? And he's trying to figure out what is the <laughs> what is the right word. Um, cause that's what matters. The way you pitch this, like not what it actually is, but the way you pitch it is the thing yes. that matters. Um, and he says at one point it'll have the ethos of a nonprofit, but with a, but a with a path to crazy margins, like that just sounds cool in a pitch meeting, but it doesn't, you know, mean anything. Uh, I agree. All that stuff was really, really fun. I, we also have not talked enough about Logan, about Brian Cox, um, and man, yeah, I was about to go there. Is he is the like force of gravity? He is the center that kind of keep. He is like God or the most powerful person in the world, the king. I don't know whatever it is. That, like that, everyone is trying to like get the favor of and who he is. And I just thought it was one of his stronger episodes, and it was really interesting to see him stripped down of everything you know, of there's no kids around like everyone who's super yep. familiar to him all of his kids yep. marcia like it's all gone you know and it was yep. like these kind of tragic king fairy tales where it's like okay he has the kingdom he you know he's gained the world but lost his soul like you really see he's all there mm-hmm. and there were so many moments that i loved with him one was when he was just sitting around and he was like okay, why don't you tell a joke? Frank, you tell a joke. And he's trying to get everyone to tell jokes and like no one can do it. And he's missing his kids. He's missing Roman, who's funny all the he's time. Missing he's missing Roman, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, oh, I don't have this. And he, he realizes like how empty it all is. And just the scene of him like walking through Central Park. And then the best scene in the show for me was like when he goes with Colin and they have that scene at the diner. What did you think mm-hmm. of that scene? Oh, I thought really this whole episode... I thought we learned something about Logan that we didn't know before, which is that he actually loves children. 
And I have yeah. not believed this about him. I've always believed that he hates his kids. I've said this to Michaela, to my wife, as we've been watching it and talking about Logan. And I've, I've, that's been my read of him is that he actually does not love, he's not capable of love. And he's not really capable of giving love. But I think what we learned in episode one of season four is that he loves his children and that he longs to communicate with them. And when yeah. they're not around on an, uh, on an important day like his birthday, he does what I think a lot of us do when we don't get what we want at these pivotal moments in our life, which is that we kind of go into despondency, into philosophy, and what is the meaning of life? And why are we here in the first place? I would not have thought Logan was capable of even asking those questions and being that self-reflective. Um, and, it, you know, I think it, it, was, it was played a little bit as comedy, but I took it really seriously. This is a guy who just misses his children and, um, and does not know how to talk about that or think about that, but he's missing them and his heart is exploring, is trying to find meaning in, you know, in his own existence with, and he can't find it without his kids around. The way he described humanity, I thought was really interesting, which he's like, I am like a Titan, but they're all pygmies, but everything is a market. And everyone else, mm-hmm. but all these other forces kind of make up the market. And that's what the market is. It's like all these people all together. Um, <laughs> such a like crass, like businessy way to think about people. And he's like, there's a market for money and there's a market for jobs and there's a market for relationships. But like everything is sort of a market force. Like that's the way he sees the world. And then just his question like of his own mortality, which has been a central question the whole show, which is like, do you think there's something after this? Um, and he asks Colin and Colin, you know, kind of says, well, my dad's religious. And then Logan kind of cuts him off. He doesn't even let Colin (laughs) speak. He's just like, you know, he kind of jumps into that moment, but him wrestling through all that stuff, I thought was really, really interesting. It was so sad. I don't remember what he says exactly to Colin, but he basically tells him that he's his best friend. Right. And Colin just has no idea how to respond to that. Colin clearly does not feel the same way. And it's heartbreaking. It's probably the first time I felt any sympathy for that man. I've really despised him as a character. Like I said before, I did not think he was capable of love until this episode. And I'm glad they kind of, I think it has been a question looming over the show. Does Logan care about his kids at all? And I feel like they gave us an episode to answer that question. Yeah, it reminded me of the scene in like Breaking Bad when like, Walt pays the Robert Forrester character just to play cards with him for a half hour because he's like lost Mm. everything. Um, And that was same. He's like, Hey, you're my best. You're my friend. Like he kind of like keeps saying stuff. He's like, Hey, you're a good guy. And then you're my friend. You're my best friend or you're my best guy. Mm -hmm. You know, and you just kind of keep, and Colin's like, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Like (laughs) there's like Colin knows, like I can't do anything to set this guy off. Like, and you, you see that he's the best at it. Um, which leads me to kind of my final question, which is like, what's the question still left to be answered in this show? And maybe I'm too programmed from watching all these other legacy shows like Breaking Bad. It's like, what's going to happen to Walter White or Better Call Saul, you know, Gene, is he going to be redeemed or not? You know, it's will Tony Soprano die? It's who will Don Draper become? There's kind of these like central characters with like a big question that it, like when I'm going in the season, this is what I want answered. I'm curious from you, like, where do you want the show to go or where do you think it needs to go? Or what is that central question? I think the question is in the title of the show. You could put a question mark behind the word succession. Who's going to succeed Logan? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that's, I think that's the kind of the, the basic storyline is, is uh, what happens at the company and who, who takes the reins of power either when he dies or when he finally relents. The show has already answered this like in a variety of ways, though. 
um, uh, that no one can succeed, Logan. Like it's just an impossible job. There is no ATN really anymore to to take the helm of anyway. It's being maybe bought and sold. It's already been broken up in some ways. It has, you know, it's they've they've lost some shareholder value. I don't know. I don't forget exactly where we are in terms of the nature of the business, but. Um, you know, the central question, I think, plot-wise of the show is what happens to, to power vacuums in, in big institutional media companies like this, which a bunch of our current-day media companies are, are, are facing that question as well. I actually think, though, like that plot question is less interesting than uh, another question that's like undergird, undergirding the whole entire show, which is, can anyone in this environment be good like, can they yeah. sacrifice? I think I, maybe this is like naive. Maybe this is anti Jesse Armstrong's thesis about whether people can change or not. But I think what I've been looking for is someone to make a good sacrificial decision on behalf of someone yeah. else. Like yeah. choosing love and kindness and healing. I mean, even in The Wire, we like light breaks in, which is like maybe the right. darkest, most cynical show, you know, about a city and institutions of all time. But even there... We see, you know, bubbles find uh, restoration and, right. you know, we see, we see healing come in in a variety of ways here and there. That has not happened in succession. Like we haven't seen someone choose good. And I'm kind of holding on hope that that storyline emerges um, just to counterbalance everything else. And I, I do think that's a question hanging over the, the rest of the show. Yeah, I think that's the question I'm leaning into, which is like, is love and redemption possible for anyone? Like, is, you know, is there some sort of healing or restoration or connection that can happen in a meaningful way? Will Logan not necessarily, like, be succeeded, but will he actually, like, validate his children? Will he actually, like, d does Logan love his children? Will he actually d give them some sort of morsel or some sort of moment? that says that he will. I expect this show to end tragically. I think we've been talking about comedy versus tragedy. Um, it's a very Shakespearean term, and I'm expecting this to be a tragedy. I don't expect this to end well, but I think what I'm looking for is at least an attempt for some sort of, like, atonement, making things right, <laughs> you know, acknowledgement of all the pain that has been caused. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 expect, to, I expect it to end in tragedy, too. I do hope that there is a little bit of nobility. I don't know who it can possibly be. I used to think it would be Cousin Greg, but after you sue Greenpeace, I don't think there's any nobility left for you. <laughs> what do they call what do they call themselves the disgusting brothers or <laughs> brothers, yes, exactly. He's devolved uh since we first met him, but I do think I will be hoping for and probably um disappointed if we don't see some like basic human goodness emerge in some, you know, really pointed way. Okay. So this is kind of your final argument, Patton. We've talked around it, but if you had your kind of one minute soliloquy or so of like, this is the meaning of succession, what would you say? This is the meaning of this show. Yeah. I think the straightforward meaning of succession is that I'm not going to say rich and powerful people of all kinds, because they all, they come in all shapes and sizes, but rich and powerful people who are like this, um, they can do anything and they can get away with it. They can buy anything in anyone, anytime. Consequences do not apply to them. And that's part of what the show is just documenting, right? That they can get away, literally get away with murder, um, be have a consequence-free life. But it's also true that they are living in their own hell. And yeah. um, everyone talks about how the show is Shakespeare, but it's also Dante. 
Like they are, these mm. people are in, these people are in doom loops of their own making. Um, Logan, most of all, because again, as we learned in this last episode, he really just wants his family around him and they're not going to be because he's been driving them away his whole life. So he, you know, they, all these people are their own worst monster. They're trying to figure out who the monsters are and it's all of them inside of each one of them. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and I, this show spends so much time. It lavishes so much attention to detail on wealth and what wealth looks like and feels like and their clothes and the set design and the opulence. It has really minute uh, expressions of all that. Um, and it's sort of glorious and totally empty. Um, and not just empty, but punishing actually to, to these people um, because they're all miserable beings. Um, so I think that's pretty straightforward uh, what Succession is about. Yeah, it's really well said. I would echo that to me, the meaning of succession is it is about family and every family has power dynamics. If you've ever been to someone else's house in Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas, you learn quickly like all the characters, who's where on the pecking order, who's kind of the king mm -hmm. of the house, who's the weird cousin Greg, like every single family has these different things. Every family has skeletons in the closet of like hurts from the past or whatever else that like shape who they are. And I think that's what succession, even though I can never relate to my own private helicopter, I can never relate to, oh, I have all this wealth and the clothes and trips to Italy and overnight notice. I don't know what that's like, but I do know what it's like to deal with family and the way that family can hurt you more than your worst enemy. Your closest people, the most loving people, are also the people who can cut you the deepest. And I think that's what this show is about. It's the power dynamics that happen within family and um, just how <laughs> dark and heavy family can be. And then I do think you mentioned moments of light. I do think there are a few moments where we see the siblings bonding together or we see something happen where it's like, oh, these people love each other that I just like cling on to because I'm like, there's nothing more powerful than when a family member gives you validation, when they speak life into you, and when they say, no, like you're going to be okay. You're going to make it through this. And I just mm -hmm. think the the heaviness of family dynamics and how they weigh on us so much and how we don't know how to navigate them, even though they're our closest relationships are what this show does so insightfully and why I continue to watch. Man, you just made me so sad. I, I want to go home and hug every person in my family <laughs> and tell them they can have all the power. I don't care. I just want them around me at my birthday party. Not me, man. I think when I parent my kids, I'm like, what would Logan Roy do in this situation? <laughs> like, how can I pit them against each other to do chores? You know, like, <laughs> but I'm a dark soul. Um, well, Pat, this indeed. has been fun. Uh, thanks for Thanks for jumping in, man. Thanks for talking about it. Yeah, man. Thanks for inviting me. Um, big fan of your podcast, and thanks for um, thanks for making an exception to talk about a TV show. It was good times. Now, we, we rarely do. We rarely do, but this one had to be talked about. We may do some sort of follow up at the end, uh, depending where this ends, to see how it all ends. Because um, I'll be watching, and if you have made it this far, you're probably watching along. And so, feel free to comment, to like, to share about what you like about this episode and what you like about this show. Until then, we'll see you the next time on. The meaning of the movie.